At this point in the halvening cycle, Bitcoin price starts to get exciting and enter mainstream news. And so detractors who've been sleeping and quietly congratulating themselves, or sometimes loudly throughout the bear market, come out of the woodwork and they reiterate all the old talking points that Bitcoin is just a criminal enterprise, it's used for crime, the only reason you'd want it is for money laundering and that sort of thing. And these narratives get picked up in mainstream coverage. This week, of course, Senator Warren and Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, had a fun, probably scripted back and forth on the subject in front of the Senate. But global crypto, and I hate the term crypto, but this report comes from Chainalysis, so that's what they use. Global crypto adoption is still above 2019 levels. So if you kind of smooth over the volatility of everyone aping in during a bull market and then losing interest in a bear market, the trend is still solidly positive. And what's really interesting is that by the Chainalysis metrics, the five largest adopters per capita of crypto, whatever that means, in order is India, Vietnam, Nigeria, the US, and Ukraine. And this is a really, really interesting list because one of these countries is not like the others. Four of them, India, Vietnam, Nigeria, and Ukraine, are adopting crypto very likely due to high inflation, currency demonetization, capital controls, a wartime economy in Ukraine that is very bad for individual savings. I mean, if you don't give your money to the government to fight the war, you're basically a traitor. I think that's kind of like a monetary policy standpoint during times of war. And so being able to put inflating strings attached fiat money into permissionless money is a clear advantage for savings, for capital preservation, for having the option to spend money outside of a controlled local economy. And this, of course, ties into points Lynn Alden has made about the monetary gates are down, about how lower quality national currencies are going to be vulnerable to people opting out into things like Bitcoin, into things like stablecoins, maybe even into other speculative crypto altcoins. But one of these countries, the US, is clearly very different because unlike the other top five, the US is not a developing country. It has healthy financial markets. And so I guess the question that maybe we can discuss is, why is the US such a high adopter of crypto, quote unquote, on a per capita basis? It has the world's most developed financial markets. It's a center of global finance and monetary flows. So why is the US so high on this list? Do you have any opinions on that, Chris? I have two thoughts. And one of them seems kind of obvious. It seems like early access tech technology by a wide range of people. Some of the initial conversations around Bitcoin were in English, so it would skew towards an English-speaking audience that has access to technology and high amounts of bandwidth because it just sort of depended on, you know, a pretty good amount of transfer. But I kind of want to challenge the concept that the financial system is healthy because I think healthy is kind of a vague term because for many, many people now, 
the U.S. financial system is not serving them. And I know I felt like one of those people. Uh, and I'm not that far out of the norms, out of the mainstream, I wouldn't think. And I felt like the existing banking infrastructure and in existing investment opportunities have underserved. Like I said la- in last week's episode, I feel like I have to earn my fiat twice. I have to earn it, which I pay an immense tax on, and then I have to invest it, and then I pay an immense tax on that. And to me, having to become a stock expert, having to become an investment expert and a supply chain expert and a macroeconomical expert in order to just be able to buy some property and buy a few toys just seemed too far removed. And then you combine like they don't really have any products for somebody who doesn't already have wealth. You know, the banks don't really give you tooling unless you already have access to capital, which I never had. So to me, the banking system was never really serving me. And I know there's people that it's even even more dramatically underserving. And it's, I think, a larger and larger demographic of people in the West. And now I think initially the way I would the way I would summarize what I've said is initially it was early access to technology and broadband and English speaking preference. Now I think it is as time has gone on and the Western world has become more financialized, the elite and the people at the top are benefiting tremendous. It is exceedingly healthy for them. It is exceeding. And by many of the standards and norms, we talk middle class and, you know, the rich and the poor and like those, we haven't really updated those terms. And so by all the terms we still refer to, it's like healthy in those kind of traditional aspects. But just under the hood, you can see all of these problems that haven't been addressed for very, very, very long time. And there's a lot of maintenance that needs to be done on this engine. And so I think it's actually now for many people just a superior product. I think that's a good jumping off point, because when you talk about terms like middle class, I think this is a very charged issue in the U.S. Whenever I have casual conversations I think everyone considers themselves middle class. And so I don't think that that's a useful term anymore. And let's just try to define it. What do you think middle class is? What does your income have to be? What do your assets have to look like? Do you need a certain educational background to be middle class? Like, let's just get this out there. Hmm. All right. So that's a good question. I don't think I've thought about it a lot. I think when in my definition of middle class, it's probably somebody who's making about 50,000 or more. They're making under a million a year, probably making under 500,000 a year, somewhere between 50 and 500,000. I think with inflation and the cost of goods. Is that 50K combined household income or is that two working yeah. parents? 50K. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Combine 65. Middle class now. I'm thinking now I'm updating my numbers for inflation as we're talking. But Chris, the poverty level is 40K. So right. if you're 25K above the poverty level, you think that's middle class? Okay. How about this? We saw a survey of folks that make 100 to 150,000 a year and something like 70 something percent of them reported their living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So I think if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're not middle class because you don't have financial security. That's kind of my point though, is we really haven't really, we've, we haven't really redefined these terms, but we still use these terms, even though they're no longer really uh, accurate or appropriate. Like if, so if you make a hundred thousand a year, maybe as a household and, or even as an individual, but you're, regardless, you're leaving paycheck to paycheck. You're not investing that money in anything. You're not building wealth. You're just surviving. Well, I think that there's also some complications here because many people in the United States work for large companies, which I define as a company with over 500 employees. And companies like that generally have savings programs with employer match, like 401ks. I think there are a lot of people who do live paycheck to paycheck, but they are also contributing in some form to a 401k with an employer match. And so 
there's this idea that, well, if you have a 401k with an employer match, how could you not be middle class? But the thing is, that's not really money you can access. It's also not, in my opinion, efficiently invested, because if you dig into these employer match programs, they're generally using some 401k provider that's taking fees that doesn't give you a great selection of investment opportunities. They often have their own kind of labeling on top of a Vanguard or Fidelity fund. So there's layers of middlemen here. And you can only access those funds without significant tax penalties when you're quite old, like around 65. So there's this odd structure where you can have people living paycheck to paycheck, even with relatively high income, whatever that means. They are contributing to retirement accounts, but that's not really savings in the moment. That's savings down the line. And yeah, you can technically borrow against them, but there's a lot of complexity there and you can mess it up and end up with a tax burden. So I think it's pretty complicated to define middle class, but I also think that this conversation highlights how you can't just say that someone has a combined household income over 100K and therefore they're doing fine. Because for instance, there was an article in the Seattle Times, I think two weeks ago, where the conclusion was 100K in Seattle for a family and you are just barely scraping by. You're just barely scraping by because it's a high cost of living area. And I had a conversation with another dad in the playground about this and he took a very different view, which was that's on you. You're dumb for living in Seattle if you can only get 100K and personal responsibility. And I think that's kind of a reductive view because it's not like people live in high cost of living areas because they love paying a high cost of living. They live there because that's where economic growth and job opportunities are concentrated. And sure, you can move to a lower cost of living area, but how exactly are you going to make any money there, given that growth is so concentrated in expensive urban areas in the US? And so I think this might be getting away from the point, but the US has relatively high penetration of investor ownership of crypto assets, I think Bitcoin primarily. I wonder if Bitcoin is more of an investment or savings technology here. I wonder if the experience of the US is more similar for many people to de developing countries where it's difficult to save and difficult to build wealth. I, I think it is becoming, I guess here's the point I'll try to, I'll, I'll take another stab at it is, so going by Gallup, 61% of U.S. adults in 2023 say they own stock. Now, here's the thing. 10% of U.S., uh, like the top 50th to the 19th percentile of wealth, own most of those stocks, about 88%. I, I don't really understand how 28 trillion is owned by just 10% of people. Like, it just seems exponentially crazy because it basically leaves like pennies left for the rest of us. So you have 61% of people in the U.S. are holding some sort of stocks. But the vast, vast majority of that wealth is just by the top 10%. And I feel like that is an indication of a system that's probably not working for 90% of the people. Because like you said, 401ks and other things are kind of like what we're forced into through our employer. But otherwise, you have to actively manage your money to make profit, to make an actual savings. Like you don't just get savings by sitting on your cash anymore. 
And so to me, that does seem like a system that isn't working for a lot of people that would be looking for an alternative product. And I think it ties into our pre-show banter, where we sometimes talk about what the stock market is doing and what that means. And a point of view I've had for a long time is that because a lot of buying in the stock market is automated through 401k plans and things like that, the economic signals from the stock market are really self-referential. When stock prices go up, it just means that there is buying of stocks. That's all it means. And if all the buying or a lot of the buying is this automated process that being employed and compensated in the US means you need to participate in, then the stock market is not a economic indicator, or at best, it's a very lagged economic indicator. And as we'll get into in this episode, there's a lot of evidence that financial markets in the US and by expansion worldwide have become kind of a self-referential system that doesn't really connect with the real economy. And that's a huge problem because any kind of rational, reasonable economic theory, which, you know, it's a theory, it's not a science, suggests that the purpose of financial markets is to create a place for real businesses to source investment, to invest in the real economy, to build real things that builds real wealth for society and people. And so if this system that's supposed to aid investment in the real world no longer does that and instead is turned into this weird relationship between government bailouts, government spending, and speculation within that system, if it's become this closed loop that doesn't feed back into the real economy and real wages for people worldwide, then it means that there's a huge systemic structural problem here. And I think it has social, political, obviously financial implications. We see it when the report comes out and jobs are good. Jobs are stronger. More people got jobs than we expected. The economy continues to just really seem to be soaking up as many people as it can. That's You would think great news. If people want work, they seem to be able to get it. Okay, that's what we're being told. That's great news. Stock market goes down on the news because it means the Fed is less likely to lower rates sooner. And so it's we're now we now live in this reality where what is technically good news for, quote unquote, the middle class, whatever that is, good news for one cohort of the country is bad news for Wall Street. And I just think we're in this crazy situation where, like you say, it's totally disconnected from reality, right? Like I keep reading from truckers that listen to my shows that we're going into some sort of freight recession and collapse, like trucking is back to where it was during the lockdown and is completely collapsing. Nobody's talking about it. And I look at companies like Target and Intel and NVIDIA and their stocks are all up today. They're doing fine, even though the very vehicles that supply them the essential goods they need to run their businesses may be going out of business. They're st- they're good. They're good because they did some layoffs, so they're good. And retailers like Target and Walmart are reporting falls in sales, which is very weird for the holiday season because this is where they make their bumper sales and profits. And so that suggests recession. It suggests economic contraction. But because the jobs number, which is a lagging measure of employment, but it's the thing that the Fed says that it watches is still good, it means less chance of financial stimulus, less chance of bailouts, and therefore bad for financial prices. In a way, this is all you need to say to open the conversation that there is a legitimate need for alternative financial systems, because this system that we have, our status quo, is a self-licking ice cream cone, and it doesn't seem to be serving the vast majority of people, even in the richest country in the world. 
This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on December 8th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... It's me. Hey, Chris. Hi. Hello. I hey, mean, Chris. I'm Chris. He- you're, you're, hello. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dad. You're Chris. Hey, Dad. Hi. Hey. Hi. On today's show, we're going to discuss how getting fiat liquidity out of Bitcoin is getting harder in the U.S., It's already been kind of shut down in Canada, what this means in the context of an impending ETF approval. Jack Dorsey's company Block has unveiled a new hardware wallet called BitKey that seems pretty interesting. Chris is going to introduce us to that. In economics, I read a very interesting paper about banking regulation and how that relates to the news about less fiat lending options for Bitcoiners. In privacy, there's been a new Bitcoin mining pool announced, Ocean Pool. It might be incompatible with privacy services like Samurai. Are they censoring? What's going on there? Kind of an interesting bit of mining news. And in Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 280, which covers a proposal called Cluster Mempool that seeks to solve a lot of the dependent transaction problems that make child pays for parent, RBF, essentially fee-bumping technologies uh, difficult to use today, and it might be solved by something like Cluster Mempool. It also shows up on the Delving Bitcoin Forum, which is one of these new places for Bitcoin developers to talk and share ideas and collaborate now that the Bitcoin dev mailing list is being dropped by the Linux Foundation. And then we have some feedback and boosts, and that is our show. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. And What do you say? We start with a problem that you and I have been scratching our heads on more and more, and that is, should the time come, actually wanting to cash your Bitcoin out seems like it's getting tighter and tighter and there's less and less options. Uh, One that I noticed that seems just really a shame is Unchained Capital, which is a pretty respected group in this area, announced that they're, quote unquote, pausing Bitcoin-backed loans to individuals. Now, if you got an LLC and you can verify it's for a business with business investment purposes, Unchained will still give you a Bitcoin-backed loan. But no more Bitcoin collateral-backed loans from probably the most reputable company in the space. Amongst other things, it's just it's getting tougher and tougher. And there are a range of companies that will basically take your Bitcoin as collateral and give you fiat currency. And I believe, based on anecdotal conversation, that the killer use case for this is for Bitcoiners who have held Bitcoin through a couple halvening cycles, who have some big gains. They own a lot of Bitcoin relative to the other things they own. And they want to basically unlock some of the value of this Bitcoin without selling it, without triggering a taxable event, and basically borrow against it so they can, generally speaking, buy a house. That seems to be the killer app. And there seem to be changes in the regulation of companies that do this kind of lending activity that seem basically designed to break the ability to use Bitcoin to like buy a house. Because if you're doing this LLC structure, I think you could still do this to purchase an investment property. But I don't believe that if you're buying a house and living in it, 
that would qualify. Do you think I have that right? Or, or am I speculating too much here? Yeah, maybe if you were buying an office space that maybe had a room. <laughs> but that seems to be the case. And I, I mean, who knows? Time will change and uh, future products may come back onto the market. Unchained did kind of imply they're going to continue to work on trying to offer services to individuals. But the dream, right, would be this is, of course, a lot of things going just right. But let's say Bitcoin's 500,000, 200,000. And uh, you've got, you've got an nice little stack, you could put a 50% backed collateral loan on Unchained, get an exceptionally low interest rate, and um, essentially get access to some liquidity without having to sell your Bitcoin, and in a non-taxable way too. It just seemed like it was a great opportunity. And it's how like, you know, this is how Steve Jobs lived. This is how Jeff Bezos lives today. His quote unquote $1 salary is because he lives off of collateral backed loans and whatnot from his unbelievable amounts of stock options and whatnot in the various companies he has stock in and other properties that he has and whatnot. I have a family member who's done this too with uh, even real estate. You can use real estate as collateral in these types of loans. And uh, so having, you know, Bitcoin be available as one of these collaterally backed loans, in my opinion, gave access potentially in the future to, you know, just another tool to regular old Joes who maybe don't have a great relationship with the bank. Maybe I don't have a business worth $10 million. So they're just falling all over themselves to do business with me. Maybe I don't have $5 million in fiat fund coupons sitting in one of their bank accounts. So they can't really be bothered to like, you know, roll out the red carpet for me. It doesn't, all of that goes away because with Bitcoin, it's a provable hard asset. You can check to make sure I've got it. You know, the funds are there, you know, you know, I'm good for them. And in the way they do with Unchained, it was a multi-sig. And if I didn't pay my loan, ultimately they could come collect that collateral. And it seemed like a nice tidy agreement that was low risk for the bank. And it would give access to capital to a whole new group of plebs. Uh, That's gone now. And I think the difficulty I see with justifying a policy like this, essentially stopping Bitcoin collateralized loans to consumers, is that it doesn't promote financial stability. There's not any financial risk to collateralized loans. You don't, it, that doesn't create contagion in a financial system because by definition, if the value of the collateral falls significantly, then the loan is called in, the collateral is sold, and the lender remains solvent and whole, and the borrower gets screwed. And that's fine. That's actually, I think, good business and a good financial structure because the borrower takes the risk, not the lending institution, not the financial system as a whole. And I mean, I think that maybe that's a little cold hearted. But but it also means you don't have to pass a credit check necessarily because you've got the collateral. It means that you also could exist in an environment where it's on a bull run and the collateral could go up in value, which could be an extreme benefit. I think it's a nice, tidy arrangement. The risk should be on the borrower. I think that's fine. And I'll give you just one quick example. Uh, like a year or two ago, maybe a year ago, it was during the bull, last bull run. So I guess it's more than a year ago now. We were going through some transition at JB and I wanted to cover like $2,000 worth of expenses for one month, extra expenses. And I took my personal Bitcoin and I put it up on a custodian for a bit. I took just enough out and I took a 50% backed collateral loan against that Bitcoin. So I put $4,000 worth of Bitcoin into the system and I got a $2,000 loan. And I paid that off in like three months because I was just trying to cover some costs for JB at the time. The whole thing was over in like three months. It was done, maybe even two months. And it worked really nice. It gave us, you know, in about three minutes, 
I had access to the funds and it was, it would solve a problem for us. And then we, and it was like, I think because it wasn't the best place, but it was a place I was willing to trust. I think it was like an 8% interest rate if I didn't pay it, you know, and after three months or something like that, it wasn't a fantastic rate, but as time goes on, those would get better. And I thought that was a nice tool for me. And now that provider's gone. I mean, they're still around, but they've been forced to stop offering that service. And I guess there is one situation where this is not a stable model. And it's one where there's a huge economic shock. All of the borrowers can't pay their loan payments. And so all of the collateral needs to get liquidated at once throughout like the entire industry. And then you get into this sort of doom cycle of like selling begets more selling because as people are liquidated, the value of everyone else's collateral goes down because the Bitcoin's being sold. So, you know, there there are potential kind of tail end risks to this model. That said, it's much safer than uncollateralized credit check based lending because with uncollateralized lending, which as far as I know is quickly becoming an endangered species, even in traditional finance, generally collateral is required. The same economic shock would impact incomes and the ability to service these loans, but there's no collateral to sell. And so the bank has to take the hit directly onto their balance sheet. The fact that this type of Bitcoin lending activity is being snuffed out as excitement and the likelihood of an ETF announcement in early January seems to be building. I'm not saying it's coordinated, but it does seem to be part of a trend of Bitcoin being accepted by regulators, by the traditional financial system as a speculative financial asset that you can participate in. But dear God, you better not be using it like money. And so first they come for lending. There are moves to come after self-custody. We spoke last week about the U.S. Treasury Department's FinCEN program and how they'd like to declare war on anybody running their own node or holding their own keys and subject them to the sort of financial compliance that only large entities like JP Morgan can really deal with as essentially making all sorts of just, you know, messing around with software and holding Bitcoin on your own hardware device illegal. And that sort of stuff is completely unenforceable, but it definitely will hurt some people and it will hurt an emerging financial industry based around Bitcoin, perhaps fatally. And it seems to be entirely consistent with the legacy financial system trying to embrace Bitcoin and smother any use cases that are outside of a very narrowly defined regulatory agenda. Yeah, and I feel a bit for some of these companies like your Unchained or your Albies or your Rivers out there that maybe one day will have a reckoning because there isn't a clear set of rules that's been defined via some sort of governing body that makes these rules. Instead, it is cowboy regulators just enforcement here and there at different and getting some legal wins and some legal losses. And then it's up to these individual companies to kind of parse together what that means. <laughs> However, they interpret that as a set of rules to follow. And now they have to start adapting their businesses, which they've been developing for years to those new interpretations, which have only begun to really roll out this bear market for the last 18 months. I find that to be a position that I can sympathize with to a degree. That's a crappy, crappy thing. You know, you, you want to be a first mover. You want to get something that's like an aggressive, like wallet of Satoshi, a product that's a little aggressive in the space, but it's a, it's, it's also a, something that seems to be in demand. And then they get to this new reality where we have enforcement 
through lawsuits and they just folks like them just panic and they okay we're pulling out of the US market we're just not going to deal with this they just pull out others are going to try to like retroactively fix their business to be in compliance whatever that might be and to be specific we're talking about companies that are taking custody they are solving technical complexity that leads to difficult user experience by simplifying it with custody and that's what albi does it's what wallet of satoshi does or did and so those are the businesses that are most easy to go after because when you hold money on behalf of someone else and of course it's it's very schizophrenic right because if bitcoin isn't money then what's the big deal with a custody business that's holding bitcoin for other people you know if it's not money yeah what are they holding it it doesn't seem like a big deal so there's this schizophrenia where you're holding this thing we're not going to say it's money we can't say it's money because that would be holding up the mirror and revealing that traditional finance and banking is wearing no clothes and there are alternatives but you're doing custody and so we need you to submit to a compliance regime that will cost millions of dollars a year to implement and also you're going to need to shotgun KYC your users get all their information protect that probably lose it we don't really care about your users this is just sort of a excuse to get greater control over what you're doing and control people who are using your service that's my cynical opinion but this also ties in quite beautifully with a paper the corporatist foundations of financial regulation by david t zaring it was published in july of this year shout out to caitlin long for recommending this read and it's kind of a wonky but fascinating discussion about 70 years of banking regulation in the US. And I think that this is quite generalizable to other advanced economies with developed banking sectors. And the point is made that banking regulation is very different than other sorts of government regulation towards other industries. There's not a presumed adversarial approach. It's not like regulators are kind of trying to constrain the industry and then the industry fights back because banks don't sue their regulators. Uh, most of the processes of regulation are non-transparent. And perhaps most interestingly, because bank regulators fund themselves by fees that are paid by the institutions they regulate, in a way, banking regulation via the FDIC and the Federal Reserve is a non-democratic private process. It's a corporatist collaboration. It's a collaborative regulation experiment. And even before Bitcoin, and we were talking about the fundamental problems of the monetary system, it was well recognized that there is a huge incentive problem with bank regulators because there is a revolving door between the companies they regulate and the regulators. And so someone who is a regulator is not incentive to regulate too hard because in a few years they'll be working for the bank they're regulating. So give them a couple wins, throw them some bones, and then you can enjoy a well-compensated job in industry after you're done regulating industry. And the door goes both ways. Often bank executives end up as regulators. And so it's, it's a very incestuous, intertwined relationship. And I think the point of view of this paper is that this is non-sustainable. It has 
massive moral hazard problems that are perhaps best exemplified by the bailouts of 2008 and then the COVID bailouts, which were even larger, but less controversial because regular people also got 2000 bucks while institutions got trillions. And there is not a good mechanism for political control over this regulation. And so banking is in many ways an industry that regulates itself, has created moats to smaller players expanding. It's uh, created massive concentration in entities that are now called GSIBs, globally systemic investment banks, I think maybe. But these incentives have led to the centralization of the banking and financial system. And the only time that these institutions seem to cave to sort of external regulation outside of their their direct regulators have to do about moral panics around terrorism financing and national security. And when those concessions are made, you know, it's not the banks that get hurt. It's the users of the banks who have to give more information, uh, surrender more of their freedoms to regulators. So how does this tie into Bitcoin? I mean, how does it not tie into Bitcoin? I guess maybe <laughs> should be the question. Yeah. Well, I think the conclusion of the paper is that there is not a political solution to this problem at this time, because we would need broad political consensus to change these regulatory structures. And there is absolutely no political consensus in the US today. It's a bifurcated political system, uh, and it seems to be heading in a direction where half of the country definitionally has to hate the other half. So without political consensus to solve our regulatory problems with banking and make it a fairer, more functional, less secretive, more open system, I think we're probably stuck with technological solutions like Bitcoin, which of course, all of the good sort of freedom promoting attributes are constantly under attack. So it looks like a hard slog for the next 10 years, in my view. I agree. I think it's likely. I think the part that gives me a little bit of hope is that, uh, you know, they can pass any law they want, any regulation they want, or they can make up any regulation via enforcement they want. But it's going to be nation specific and temporary in the grand scheme of things on a Bitcoin timescale. They're not making code changes. They're making rule changes and Bitcoin doesn't follow those rules. <laughs> it follows its own set of internal rules. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, as individual citizens, pay the significant cost of those decisions, but ultimately it doesn't actually impact Bitcoin. And as things change, nations fade over time, Bitcoin will actually remain unchanged. And that, that gives me a, a little bit of hope, just that, you know, in some way, even all these stupid things, they'll be temporary, right? Bitcoin will outlive all of these politicians and it will outlive all of these rules. Just means we might have to put up with the frustrating bits of it. That's, that's what you get for being an early adopter, I think. Tell me about it. Yeah. I do Linux professionally, but it, it bit me so many times today. <laughs> I, I don't recommend yeah. it to people anymore. You know, just just use a Mac. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you just got to safely hodl your coins, Dad. You know, just stack sats and don't pay attention to any of this stuff and just safely hodl them. But how? But what if I lose my keys? Won't I lose my coins? I right. mean, I can't right. remember a password. I'm a dad. I sleep six hours a night these days. I mean, I'm a mess. How am I going to remember passwords and things? Bit of a wake-up call over here. 
I lost a cold card. Just realized that recently. Now it wasn't one that was actually in use yet, which might be why I lost it. Cause it like, it didn't go like enshrined in the brain, but I bought one sat in the drawer for a couple of months and I w- went to go grab it, open up the drawer and it's gone. And I have no idea where it went. I searched my whole office. It was never put into production, but man, did that send chills down my spine when I realized, holy crap, if that had been one loaded with sats, I would be a real sad boy right now. But um, you probably backed up the seed somewhere so you yeah, could yeah, recover yeah. from seed. Yeah, I would have, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I probably wouldn't have forgotten had I created a wallet and actually stored some sats on there. I probably would have put it somewhere very safe and, and then probably would have burned it to my memory. But And did you ask your kids if they were playing with <laughs> daddy's calculator? calculator. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack Dorsey, you know, Block... They've been working on BitKey, and BitKey is a wallet solution that consists of three parts, really. It's got uh, an app that's on Android or iOS. It's got a hardware signing device with a fingerprint reader on there, no screen, and then a set of recovery tools that includes key storage on the cloud. And I want to get to that in a second. So just to be clear, who we're talking about here for this product, BitKey is sort of aimed at people who probably worry about you know keeping their keys on Coinbase or Cash App, uh, but they're anxious about the unforgiving experience of self-hosting your own Bitcoin, and they're worried about you know basically losing their own keys. So they're kind of looking at somebody who is aware of self-custody, but is a little bit too afraid to pull the trigger. And that's who they're trying to target with this. It's about 150 bucks. The app and hardware device have to work together. So if they go away, <laughs> I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Um, but the cloud key storage part is pretty interesting. So there's a, a recovery key that sort of gets signed by using your hardware signing device. And then that key is stored. And this has been misreported by a lot of media. It's not stored on block or bit key servers. It is stored on the cloud provider of your phone. So if you're on iOS, it's iCloud. And if you're on Googs, it's Google Drive. And the implementations between which platform you're on are technically very different. The iOS one is like key storage in a database, right? And the Android one is like Google Drive, where there's like a file and they're encrypting that file. So on iOS, they're encrypting the contents and then doing a key store. And then on Android, they're encrypting the contents and uploading it to Google Drive. But the encryption is done locally. And then depending on which phone you have, it is then stored on your account cloud storage. The reason why that really matters is if you switch from iPhone to Android or Android to iPhone, I do not believe those will work. You cannot just install the app, take your hardware device and get access to your funds. I'm not sure, but you can't you can't use that recovery key, I guess is what I'm saying. So if you depend on that recovery key to get access to your funds and you switch operating systems, you're screwed. I guess if you have two of the three, you'll be all right. But if you are relying on that cloud key and you switch platforms, I believe you will not be able to get access to your funds. And can this cloud key only be unlocked by the hardware signing device? I'm not positive about that because I think it's it, the, the, the idea is, is that you could replace the phone or the hardware signing device, but I'm not sure. I know definitely you're supposed to be able to replace the phone. Generally, a two of three system allows you to get shot one time. So if you're replacing two elements, you're out of yeah. luck. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the, and the, what they've really kind of built for it is phone upgrades. You know, you, you break your phone, you lose your phone, things like that. Phone dies. So they're trying to accommodate for that. You can run the wallet without that cloud key backup option. 
But then, of course, you don't have as many options for recovery, including one option that's kind of nice. It's called the break glass option. And I kind of think any wallet going forward that is dependent on iOS or Google platform services should offer this. So if you lose access to iOS, App Store, or Google Play Store, you kind of can't install your app anymore. You kind of can't get your wallet anymore. You can't get your funds anymore. It's kind of a huge effing deal. Losing your iCloud account or your Google account means losing your Bitcoin wallet, essentially. So it's really dramatic. So they've created this break glass option where it allows customers, it's all this one exported file that's also encrypted, but it gives you everything in one file to onboard to a different wallet. And I obviously haven't seen this. They call it the BGK file, and it stores also in your cloud storage. I haven't obviously seen the contents of this file, but supposedly it's kind of what you need to move out, to move to a different wallet without actually having to use the app to get that file. But I, again, I'm not positive, but supposedly it is a file you can actually see in your cloud storage disk. So like you were to browse iCloud storage or Google Drive, you'd actually see this backup file, this break glass kit file that if you could decrypt would give you everything you need to move to a different app that doesn't require installing the app from the Play Store or the App Store. Now, can I ask some adversarial questions? Mm-hmm. So doesn't this mean that now you have a Bitcoin secret in a cloud drive and that just gives attackers or the cloud provider all sorts of incentives to steal this file and steal your Bitcoin? You're relying on the encryption that the app is doing, which I believe is signed with your hardware device. You're relying on that encryption done locally to be solid enough to sit on a cloud drive. Which basically means this cloud drive file if it's publicly out there on the internet if all the hackers in the world have it you need to feel safe that they can't break the encryption that the implementation of the encryption on the bitkey device is good enough for that to leak and you're not going to lose your funds and you know you could use it without this feature but then you're kind of missing out on like i think the break glass feature you're you're missing out on supposedly the very recovery options that make you comfortable to self-custody. There's some interesting things here. It's it's well-designed. The app looks really well-designed. The hardware looks really well-designed. Jack Dorsey's behind it. It is a new product that isn't just copying cold card. So that's nice to see. But I think we're too early here, man. I think we're too early for this kind of product. Like, do you need an app that has kind of been designed around the idea of giving you access to your Bitcoin so you can make daily on-chain transactions as you go about your day? Is that what you need from your Bitcoin hodling app? Should that be one of its core focuses is you going about and buying coffee with on-chain purchases? I think that we look back in five years, that might be a bonkers idea. It might look silly. Like if you want me using this for daily transactions, you better build lightning into it because look at the fees right now. So then like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be going around blasting sats on chain for coffee and lunch and dinner all day, maybe I don't even need this UI in this app. And if I'm just using it to invest and hodl, maybe I need a totally different looking app than what they've built today. I'm not a huge fan of the cloud key, but if you're going to do it, you know, this is probably the way to do it. Locally encrypted, signed by something you trust that you have physical control over, and then stored in cloud storage. This is not an ideal solution, but this is how I back up my Docker configs and my photos. I encrypt them locally, AES-256, and then I upload them incrementally up to Google Drive. And I just kind of use them as a dumb storage bucket. I don't think it's 100% bulletproof, but it's a solution and a compromise I've been willing to live with with my photos and my configs. Sounds like you've been using Duplicati. I have been. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I don't know, man. Like, 
it's it seems like a neat device and it, it may be one that I would love to recommend to my family members who may be all in on their phone and don't have a computer. This feels like some product people got together with investors or someone who's in this idea of like growth and finding new markets for products. And they decided that writing 24 words on a piece of paper and then not letting it ever touch the internet or be seen by anyone else is just too scary and hard. And so they had to build a lot of complexity to get away from the Bitcoin seed backup approach. Yeah, when you put it that way, it seems silly. And it starts making me think like, you don't even bother doing this unless you're also probably going to announce other services around all of this. Yeah, I mean, now you've got a lot of integration. So the reason you do that is to get people into some kind of ecosystem where you show them an app store or more services or something, right? Maybe loans or, you know, maybe it's DCA Which we can't do anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, they'll loan you some stable sets. I don't know. I, I find that um, I find that to be a, a good observation. It is a ton of complexity to avoid just using the seed word. And ultimately, you know what, Dad? You know what would make me feel really good about this? And again, I haven't tried this app. You can't even get it yet. If they would let me just export a 24-word seed phrase that I could write down somewhere, <laughs> that would make me feel a lot better about using it. But then they wouldn't have that nice Venn diagram. You know, there would be this other circle outside of the Venn diagram, which would be, and you have the 24-word seed for the three keys in the wallet and you can always recover from that as long as no one else sees them or takes a photo or whatever you lo- you don't lose it so there you know that's a slightly more complicated narrative around the product maybe yeah and i actually think there's starting with definitely the millennial generation and going forward a high degree of folks who just live their their phone is their primary computing device. I, I know a lot of people like this. Maybe they own a laptop from like 10 years ago, but they haven't bought a computer since like the iPhone 7 or the Galaxy 7. And uh, if they were going to ever invest in Bitcoin and hodl it themselves, they would need a phone focused solution. There you go. Right. For me, I don't trust these phone devices enough to use them as a as the source of the place where I you know my life savings goes to me they still seem like little toys that I don't have enough control over but they've tried to solve for some of that they've tried to solve for that with this and that at least is respectable they've tried to make a system where you can blow away the phone and start over and you can still have access to your phone you know I prefer to hodl on a computer a real computer because if there is some sort of crazy problem the motherboard goes out i can throw the hard drive in another machine or if i have a disk issue i can throw that disk into something and start analyzing it or i can mount it and get to the file system like there's i have a plethora of emergency recovery options with a computer no such option with phones because it's a single closed black box they've come up with an option it's specific to their product but they've come up with an option now just a dad digression i was trying to entertain another dad's young preteen son and I let him play with my Steam Deck and I thought he would find it really fun because, you know, I think it's very easy to use. There's there's two terabytes of games in there. I mean, there's like lots of stuff, right? I think he found the interface too different or complex or something. And he was back playing some Candy Crush type game on his dad's phone really fast. And I was (laughs) really disappointed. Like it made me feel worried about the future in a way that I had an experience oh, yeah. before I became a father and started looking at kids more critically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, at least they'll have sats, hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. Anyways, I think it's an, it's an interesting product. I think it's available for pre-order now. I still think the way to go, if you're willing to learn a little bit, is probably still the cold card and just don't require an account, don't require any servers because I want my cold 
card or whatever my, your stash might be, I want that to outlast a company, right? I want it to be around forever. I want to be able to give it to my kids or whatever it might be or whoever the inheritance might be. And, it, you know, maybe that company's around for 10, 20 years if they're lucky. They'll probably get acquired at some point if they are lucky. And if not, they'll fade away. I don't want to have an account. I don't, I know they have the break glass option, but I just, none of that. Completely offline, none of that. And uh, I still think if you, if you're willing to take that kind of work on and you know what, if you live in day to, everyday society, you take on risk when you walk outside, when you drive a car, when you have kids when you get in the shower, you can probably manage self-custody. So if you're willing to take on one more little thing, I think it's the way to go, but I don't disparage people who look for a solution like this. I still prefer you have this over, say, leaving them on Coinbase. This is why we're never going to get that cold card sponsorship because they don't need to. Every time something like this I comes know. up, we just plug the Here's cold the card for free. Here's your free milk. Just give it away. We need to start promoting something else so that cold card then it's like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. We, these guys we, to- we should go hot. We should go hard on Ledger because that would really drive them crazy. I know. Cold card when cloud key backups, when cloud key backups, cold card here here at the Bitcoin dad pod. <laughs> we only recommend devices that have virtual secure elements, right? Virtual. You, can, you don't want a real secure, virtual secure element, right? And then that'll drive them crazy, right? And then they'll throw us a little bit of sponsorship money. You see what I'm doing? We also need a mining pool recommendation segment so we can get sponsored by a mining pool. We could do something like we only recommend mining pools that do not accept op return statements over 40 bytes. Yeah, I, I 43. 43. Okay, yeah. Interest, interesting number. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Well, it's one over the universal answer to everything. Right. So I figure, you know, Obvious. if I'm just going to be arbitrary. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I think you might be uh, referencing some little bit of scuttlebutt going down. Did we talk about Jack Dorsey's investment in Ocean Pool? I don't think so. Okay, so Ocean Pool is a rebranding of Luke Dasher's, I guess, failed or, or disappeared mining pool, Elegius. And Ocean has a lot of marketing and I, and I think some slightly new features. They've launched with like a solo mining option that just it doesn't seem like I don't quite understand. I mean, I'm obviously not a miner, so all the miners listening will be screaming, uh, and I hope they boost in and educate us about this subject a bit better. But basically, it's a new mining pool, and they have a slightly different way of calculating miner shares, so how much payout miners get for the work they provide to the pool for finding blocks. They also have implemented a pretty open way of generating block templates so miners can see if Ocean Pool is censoring transactions or monkeying around. They don't have a payment accelerator option that a lot of other mining pools have where you can just send a transaction to the mining pool operator and then pay a very high fee with your credit card or a bank transfer or something because those transactions are very problematic from a mining pool perspective because the miners can't see them and so the miners can't get paid for them. Basically, managing a mining pool and fairly giving fees to miners is not a trivial thing it can also fail in certain situations. And so Ocean Pool has a slightly different take on that. And I think they're sort of trying to brand themselves as like an open pool that supports, you know, a decentralized open mining ecosystem that doesn't do censorship. And then the irony strikes because the irony is that they are using Luke Dasher's Bitcoin Knots Bitcoin node implementation. And Bitcoin Knots is based on FreeBSD and also Luke Dasher's extremely conservative Catholic beliefs. And so I personally have some issues with Bitcoin Knots. One issue 
is that in its default implementation that you can download from Luke Dasher, there is a block list built into Bitcoin Nots that contains a lot of sinful Bitcoin addresses. Bitcoin addresses that Luke Dasher believes are associated with pornography or things that are incompatible with his religious views. So that's kind of a uh, a no-go for me. But it also seems that Bitcoin Nots has a different policy around the maximum amount of bytes you can put in an op return message. And that policy is different than the Bitcoin core policy. And so that has been leading to some issues. Yeah, this really seems like it kind of comes down to policy differences in the backend implementations. This op return has a 43-byte limit with knots and what, an 80-byte with Bitcoin Core? And therein lies the difference in implementation in which is interfering with how Samurai Wallet operates. To me, it's not clear that this 43-character limit was chosen intentionally to be harmful to ordinals or whatever. Uh, It just seems... I don't know, like a difference in technical limitation, but it's really blown up into quite the drama online. And I think the issue for Ocean Pool is if you do not include ordinals transactions, which Luke has said publicly he believes are spam on the network, and I think spam is a subjective term. If it's consensus compatible, it's a valid transaction. So if you're not mining it, you're depriving miners of revenue. So I think that if you, as a pool operator, take decisions which deprive miners of revenue, they're probably not going to join your pool. That, I think, could be an issue there. But another issue is this implementation also seems to be preventing Samurai Wallet Whirlpool transactions. Yeah. And Luke says that the issue is on Samurai's side, but Samurai has been operating for a long time, and they've never had a problem like this with another pool. So it does sort of suggest that Luke and Ocean Pool are doing something that is, by definition, non-standard. And this affects how transactions get mined on their pool, and it excludes some privacy transactions and some ordinals activity. And it's your assertion that's probably done intentionally, right? Are you kind of thinking that that, that Luke made this, you know, he, he knew when he set this limit that this would mess with ordinals and do you think he, I just, I don't buy the coin join trying to block coin join transactions. I would buy ordinals, but it seems like you kind of implied they're self-defeating because all groups in Bitcoin that like ordinals, miners are in the camp of liking ordinals. I mean, they're making money right now. They were making money during a bear market. In fact, you could argue that ordinals came around at a time when miners really kind of needed them. Uh, so why would you participate in a pool that's going to cut you out of that action? Well, I think Ocean would have to offer higher payouts for the transactions that they do mine or some other benefits that make them very attractive to miners. And I'm not enough of an expert on this industry to fully understand that. But I think that basically, if you're doing a business with Luke Dasher, it was pretty clear from the beginning you were going to run into these problems because he's clearly a very opinionated person. I don't think he's particularly business motivated. I don't know, but he's a he's a developer. He's a religious fundamentalist. And yeah, he has strong views. And so those strong views seem to be expressed in Bitcoin knots, which they're using as the back end to this pool. Would there be less controversy if they were using Bitcoin Core as the back end? Probably, I think. Is it healthy to have multiple client interpretations of Bitcoin consensus rules? Because, you know, Bitcoin Core is 99% of Bitcoin nodes out there. That said, that creates centralization risk in Bitcoin Core development. Also, you have to acknowledge that Ethereum, which has multiple Ethereum 
node implementations periodically runs into problems where those nodes can't talk to each other and it creates network level instability. Is the benefit of having more decentralized Bitcoin node consensus development through multiple implementations outweighed by the potential conflicts of consensus and complexity that can cause? I don't know. I know that you can also run Rust Bitcoin, which is, in my understanding, a pretty close match to Bitcoin core consensus rules, but implemented in Rust and therefore potentially higher performance. I I don't know. I mean, it's a very complicated subject. The more you talk about it, the more I'm glad ocean mining is a project. I mean, I'm going to take the other side of this. I think it's, let's have some pool operator out there that is giving ordinals a hard time. Let's see how that works out. Let's see what it's like to use a different backend implementation and bring some diversity at scale to the Bitcoin ecosystem. Maybe that's a good thing. Let's see what happens there. Oh, absolutely. We're always crying about monoculture. Maybe this is good. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for this. I think this is fantastic. It brings up really interesting conversations, and I hope it didn't sound like I was disparaging Luke when I was saying he's a religious fundamentalist. I think that's how he describes himself. I think this is cool. I, he's done great work for Bitcoin. I mean, I think he's the author of Segwit, or, or at least wrote the BIP. So he's an OG. I mean, Luke is uh, a legend. And it's cool that Jack Dorsey is you know giving $6 million to a company with someone like that on the team to build stuff that's potentially cool and definitely controversial already. And I think the goal of taking a crack at the sort of triopoly in Bitcoin mining right now is a good one. I like seeing these things kind of move and shake the hash rate up a little bit. We'll see. Uh, They may end up with with enough controversy that uh, people avoid them. I mean, Samurai Wallet on Twitter is going full force at saying that essentially they're intentionally suppressing privacy. We're going to have to find some sort of common ground there and we're going to have to see that get worked out. That is also classic Samurai Wallet. Never change Samurai or change if you like. (laughs) This episode's brought to you by my podcast network over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Let's go over there right now. I'll go with you, jupiterbroadcasting.com. We got a brand new fresh coat of radio out. The slow and the infuriating, Mike finally capitulates and gets into xCloud and uh, doesn't go well, but he shares the story with us. His pain is our entertainment. And then also Google gets really slammed in court and uh, turns out they're intentionally deleting chat history and the judge calls them out. And then on Linux Unplugged, some of our worst moments in Linux. I know, Dad, you're feeling bad right now. You can go listen to episode 539, some of our worst moments in Linux, documented for all of you. That's that and more over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I think you meant Xcode, not xCloud. Did I say xCloud? Yeah. Well, I'm sure one day there will be an Xcode in the cloud, so maybe they should. Uh, maybe I should trademark that term or something. It just is so weird because whenever Dominic talks about the developer experience on iOS and in the Apple ecosystem, it just sounds like developers are sharecroppers there. It just sounds horrible. Like you're treated so badly by Apple. And it's so weird because Apple's whole message is that they're really about user experience. But if you're developing for their users, they just treat you like garbage. You should be grateful Apple is making these fantastic devices and has made this wonderful app store with all these credit cards attached to it and devices that people want to install apps on. What aren't you understanding about this arrangement? Right. So I guess this is really just a power relationship. It all boils down to power. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it always has. (laughs) 
Well, Bitcoin Optech 280 is filled with a brain-melting conversation about cluster mempool. So do you think about your mempool a lot, Chris? Only during high fee times. Only during the high fee times do I think about it or when I'm considering a transaction. Otherwise, I tend not to think about it much. Well, this is really interesting because it coincides with the issue I had recently with fee bumping a transaction. And I had to do a bunch of configuration to make my mempool larger so that it would contain both the parent and child transaction and then pray to Satoshi that it would then propagate to other nodes with larger mempools and eventually make it into a block. And it did, which was great. But the issue is that basically miners have to do a very MP complete problem to figure out what the best transactions to mine are. So you can just look at a mempool and you can just select the highest fee transactions and try to fit as many of them possible into a block. And that's one way to build a block. But my child pays for parent transaction will never get mined because the the parent transaction is of a low fee, but the child transaction is of a high fee. So now when you put that child transaction into this block template, you have to look back and find the parent transaction. And if you have to do that a lot, you you just sort of get into this regression. It, It takes a lot of time to build this block as other blocks are mined and some transactions are taken out. You start to need to recalculate everything. It's just this constant high compute problem that never ends. And it leads to issues like I experienced where a child transaction that is of a very high fee that is boosting the average fee of the parent transaction to the point where it's attractive to be mined. These uh, these are hard to find, hard to compute, hard to include in blocks, and it's a bad user experience. So there is a proposal called Cluster Mempool. And the idea is that the mempool will create logical chunks of transactions, kind of transactions that are sort of related to each other. And the way that this is done is very technical. It requires something called a directed acyclic graph. And I invite you to read deeper into it. But by logically organizing transactions into these fee rate determined chunks, it's now easier to calculate a block template because you don't have to do all of this one by one computation around every transaction. Is it the highest fee? Does it have any dependence? The dependents are already inside this chunk, and you can compare these chunks using some simple logic to eventually get the best combination of chunks into a block. When I look at it, it seems very data science-y. You know, they're using some logic to create clusters, and this is a, a technique you often see in, uh, in in sort of data science applications. So it's interesting that this is making it into potentially in the future uh, Bitcoin Core. There's some information theory here. There's some sorting algorithm work here. It's a very computer science problem, and it's an unsolved one because, as you can relate, sorting algorithms are you know they're algorithms. They're not proofs. There's not a proven best way to sort things. It's very specific on the software, the technology, and the the data you're dealing with. And that's why mining is kind of a more of an art than a science, because miners seem to be taking Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin Core's default mempool policies and then building additional custom heuristic code on top of that to try and construct 
valuable blocks and milk the value out of every block. Of course they are. Of course they are. Well, I suppose that's uh, what you'd expect. We'd like your heuristic thoughts. You can email the pod, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com. You could try us on WeaponX at bitcoindadpod or join the live chat going on right now as we record in our Matrix channel. We'll have links in the show notes for that. And we received a baller boost this week via Albi from Baffo. Well, technically you received the boost. I didn't get any of this action, but 98,765 sats all straight to dad's wallet. That's a pretty decent boost, Baffo. Pretty decent. I guess he's testing the new Zeus APK, eh? We have to read the Baffo quote. Oh, there, is there one? Baffo like testing new Zeus APK. I wouldn't know. I never got the message. So I, I Ouch. Ouch. Okay. <laughs> well, dad's going to have to share the love. Uh, no, no. I just like to tease Baffo. Well, uh, according to our script that pulls the boost, uh, our baller this week is Batar, uh, who comes in with 57,222 sats using Fountain. And he says, Peter Todd has been shooting down BS as far back as I can remember. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. He also likes the name. He says, I've heard it mentioned many times that the institution of central banking was, for a time at least, a net positive for depositors. Dad mentioned that he would rather have them than not have them. I used to believe this too until I came across the libertarian podcaster Tom Woods, who challenges this idea. Have a listen to this clip I made on Fountain. We get a gist of his argument. I'm interested to see if you can find any flaws in his position. Oh, well, I'll have to give that a listen. Maybe we do it next week. Clarkian boosts in 40,000 sats, boosting because of that sad segment at the end where you're practically begging for it. Oh gosh, it's a pity boost. Seriously though, I appreciate the work you guys do. Praying for a bright orange future where our kids don't have to be the wage slaves with a government that's slowly stealing their time and energy to keep the grift going. Well, that would be a very positive orange yeah. future. That would be. Wouldn't that be nice? Good one, Clarky. And I'm going to, I'm working towards that future. We're working towards that future. Dr. Doggy Balls comes in with 22,222 sats. So of course, Doggy's bringing some McDucks. Says, fellas, I share your frustration with the great water flooding you highlighted last week. What is your favorite online resource for combating this energy misinformation? Does someone have a simple but well-referenced educational site that can serve to counter this flood? If not, we need to build one. Thanks for everything. Well, I think that the best debunking of energy myths is just looking at a graph of global energy generation by source. And if you look at that graph, you can see that the bulk of energy production in the world is fossil fuel based and that wind and solar are just this like thin apple skin on top of a huge base of fossil fuels, hydro and nuclear. Actually, hydro produces more energy globally than nuclear. Yeah, the conversation really is what's the power source? And that's for anything, an EV, a town, Bitcoin mining. What's the power source and how is that power generated and how clean is that? Here's what I think the problem is, Balls, is it's you're always playing defense because these are generated narratives, right? If you just look at the baseline data, you wouldn't come to these conclusions. But if you run some crappy studies, you self-select for like the weirdest way to interpret the data and make it like a per transaction thing, you can generate a narrative that then needs responding to. But you can't preemptively debunk that water flooding. Who saw that coming? None of the information in there is based on reality. So if you go by actual information that's available, you wouldn't come to those conclusions. But if you manufacture information that makes it arrive at that conclusion, well, that's it, like then you have to respond to it. So there's no way to preemptively respond to that water flooding before it happens because they made it up. 
And I think that's a really tricky position and why that old saying that just, it's so true, it's cliche, but it's so true. But like a lie goes around the world two or three times before the truth has even gotten off the ground. It is incredible. And when you combine it with everybody wanting to be the first to publish and everybody publishing around the same time and it just goes out on blast, you can spend all your time responding to that FUD. And that very last round of FUD shows you it does nothing because that that great water FUD Bitcoin transactions using an entire swimming pool every time you do a Bitcoin transaction that was built on top of all of the FUD that's been debunked over and over and over again. And yet, like Legos, they just keep stacking it on, even though we've talked about the per transaction cost fallacy over and over again, even though we've addressed they're not appropriately looking at the way power is actually being used and where the power source is. And they're just looking at a map remotely like, man, have we gone through all of these things? And yet the FUD just builds on top of itself. There's an industry out there that wants to hear this information. There's just a large group of people that will consume anti-Bitcoin information. And so they'll keep getting their product. You can't ask someone to change their mind. And I, I think providing additional information is you know, something you kind of have to do, but don't expect anyone to change their mind. I think that what really changes people's minds over time is pain. I'm remembering a conversation I had with two German tourists to the United States. We were enjoying a beer of course, I, I want to have a controversial conversation because that's your Bitcoin dad. So I was asking them about their opinions on nuclear. I think this was pre-Ukraine war, but Germany also was already having uh, very high electrical generation costs, partially as a result of their uh, large investments into wind and solar technology, also partially due to their program of shutting down existing nuclear reactors in the country. And at that point, these two very friendly German people expressed a strongly anti-nuclear view. They referenced Chernobyl and Fukushima, and they seemed to believe that nuclear power was incredibly dangerous and that wind and solar were much better alternatives for Germany. And I think that that has been logically debunked, especially after the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which now means that Germany is cut off from cheap Russian gas. And yet their policy has resulted in completing their closure of German nuclear power generation and building more coal plants, which is uh, quite schizophrenic in my view, because coal is the dirtiest form of energy. And even if you don't like nuclear, it clearly doesn't produce anywhere near the emissions of coal. And so I think what changes people's minds over time is the cost of energy. And when people are paying a large portion of their family budget for heating costs and electrical costs, I think it makes them more receptive to investigating the issue and eventually coming to uh, hopefully a more logical conclusion. Yeah. And just a quick, more recent example of that was I distinctly remember several family members reaching out to me when the story of inflation started going out and people started to realize how bad the inflation had gotten a couple of years ago. And people started to think, crap, what am I going to do? And sure enough, my phone starts lighting up with, hey, I got a few questions about Bitcoin. Um, can I ask you? And, you know, they're starting to feel the inflation pain. Torped boosts in 22,222 sats. Another McDuck boost. Thank you, Torped. Hi, BD and Chris. Previously, I boosted. I would buy a low-powered miner and boost in the results. Well, I started the journey with an S9 instead of an R4 because S9s are fairly cheap these days at around $40. There were options in the web GUI to downclock the miner to a few tera hashes to run off of a 120-volt outlet on a dedicated 15-amp breaker, and it now stays around 155 degrees Fahrenheit. This room feels warmer? Question mark. I'm mining on the brain spool to help distribute the hash rate. Better payouts be damned. 
Thanks for the great content. Nice, Torp. Thank you for the update. A couple of questions I'm going to have follow-up when you do get a chance. Are you tracking the cost of the power? And would you be willing to share that with us? And have you thought about what this is going to be like in the summer when it's really hot? Because, <laughs> man, if the room's keeping warm now in the winter, <laughs> boy, oh boy. But that is, you know what I really, really respect is that you're pointing your hash at the brains pool just to help distribute the hash rate. You know, I could, I could see a guy wanting to like eke out as much possible rewards from that one little miner as they could. And you just said, screw it. I'm going to help distribute the hash, which is exactly what I would do if I had a little home mining operation. Aiden H came in with 20,000 sats and just says, kaboost. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, OP1984 is back with 4,000 sats and says, I too enjoy the technology connections and the annual Christmas light rant episode. Yes, I got my true tone lights. They are the best Christmas lights I've ever had. Talk about somebody else who should be sponsoring. TRU-Tone. They are LED lights, Christmas lights. They're LED, so the whole the whole uh, line pulls like 10 watts. But they have that classic, beautiful, warm color of the old incandescent bulbs from you know my childhood. So True Tone, Christmas lights, technology connections to also a good YouTube channel. Thank you, Oppie. Thank you so much. We ended up with whatever lights Home Depot sells, and the tree is lit up. And I'm wondering if this is the moment to get a smart plug so that I can- Oh, turn- yes, dude. I should turn those lights off from like midnight to 6 a.m. Christmas decorations on the smart plug are next level. Next level. Everything in our house, it's a Christmas decoration that plugs in on a smart plug. So what smart plug do I want? Because obviously I want to run this via Home Assistant, right? Do you have Z-Wave or Zigbee already? I do not. Okay, well then I would probably go with the TP-Link Wi-Fi plugs. Now, the downside is you will have to have a Casa account and use their app. But then once you have it set up, it'll be 100% local API controlled. They're really solid because I've had I've owned them for like five years and I've never had any of them like give me issues. But like with Zigbee or Z-Wave, which one would you choose? And Z-Wave. Can you get like a little USB antenna and can mm-hmm. I plug it into something in a corner and it's going to get yep. everywhere or does it have to be like a very central point? See, that's one of the reasons I like Z-Wave. If it, it, I mean, the more central, the better. But see, Z-Wave is 900 megahertz, uh, where Zigbee is 2.4. So Zigbee is competing with everything else that's 2.4 in your house. Your Wi-Fi, your wireless cordless phone, if you have it, your, your microwave, your, your neighbor's Wi-Fi. It, it's 2.4 is a very busy space, and it doesn't go through the walls like 900 does. Wait, microwaves are in the same spectrum as our Wi-Fi? Yep, 2.4. Why would you do that? Because it's a public space. It's a public spectrum. And when they're making the microwaves back in the 80s or late 70s, you know, they just needed to be able to use some spectrum that wouldn't be taken up by commercial equipment already that's licensed out. And then Wi-Fi came along and was like... Wi-Fi had the same problem. Yep. So they used the 2.4 space. Guess what? So did Zigbee. (laughs) (laughs) Oi vey. Yeah. At Halleck, boosted in 10,000 sats. Thank you, Halleck. There's a lot of talk about orange-pilling your community and creating circular economies on Stacker News. I never had the guts to do it in person until recently. I might have told a normie to download Wallet of Satoshi and sent them some sats. I guess there's a raft of questions here. Take your pick. How do circular economies get going historically? How could your average listener be a catalyst? What is the fastest and easiest wallet someone can quickly install post-wallet of Satoshi? Well, this could be its own segment. These are great questions. This really could be its own segment. This is an episode right here. And you know what? I'll add another question. 
why aren't we doing this with our own community? Like I've thought about why don't like our meetups could it have a Bitcoin aspect to them? We could have a circular economy going in the JB. I know the JB community and listen, we have accountants, we have doctors, we've got people that make stuff. We've got, you know, like we have a pretty big group of people. We could have our own circular economy going, just sending each other sats directly for each other's services and products. But well, it just haven't gotten off the ground yet. So why haven't we? Historically, there have been local money circular economies, and they've generally cropped up when the broader monetary system has been seriously impaired, like during the Great Depression. I know of a story of a local economy in Austria. There have also been local money economies, I think, here in Washington State, too. And generally, they they happen because they're the, the sort of best out of worst options at the time. It doesn't ever really mm -hmm. happen, in my view, in a happy right. situation. I've noticed this year specifically, and as the year's gone on, it's increased, other small businesses doing a trade of services with my wife, who's an acupuncturist. So a barbecue restaurant will trade her three dinners to come in and you know do acupuncture. Or, you know, there's just like there's a list of a lot of local businesses that just a couple of years ago they all just paid cash with they all just did everything in cash between each other. And now they're doing a trade of services instead of cash. The sign of deflation. It's something. I think this is a fantastic question, uh, Halleck. Uh, also, maybe you should consider Zeus Wallet or Phoenix Wallet, uh, just something else to look at instead of Wallet of Satoshi, just to knock off one of your questions there. How could the average listener be a catalyst when you see something like this going on? Jump into it. Like the, the beef community, uh, I've, I've seen this going, this is growing in the medical community. The CrowdStrike folks right now are trying to get a bunch of doctors in on the Lightning Network. If that takes off, that might be something to worth look at. You know, just all these different areas, you just got to be careful and pick wisely, but jump in on the one that makes sense to you. That's just to knock off a couple of your questions, but I feel like we should take that whole thing and inspire an episode out of it. Maybe if we need to do a holiday episode, maybe we should do a circular economy for the holidays episode if we need to pre-record or something. We need to find a circular economies guest. Maybe that Vexless guy who pops up every now and then. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Faraday Fedora boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Sorry for the lack of support lately. Keep up the good content and glad you guys had a good time down south. Well, thank you very much for the boost. And apparently we were begging for it. So well, we had a light, we that. had a light week. And I will say, just from a business standpoint, it kind of hurts after you travel, you go somewhere, you get some exclusive stuff, you get some perspectives that maybe no other podcast has because there weren't really any other podcasters down there. And you come back and the boosts are low. You're like, oh, that's a very expensive trip. And then there's no boost. It's like, oh, but now people are stepping up. So we appreciate it. Did I tell you I got an offer to promote a manscaping product on the podcast. Oh, congratulations. A, a podcast. Yeah, it was, I even oh. clicked on the link and I was like, oh my God, no. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. We could really lean into the male energy there though. Uh, vitality pills, grooming products, workout products, protein shakes. I think the testosterone replacement is a real moneymaker. Well, and you know, we got to sample some of this stuff to see if it works before we promote it. So if there are a couple episodes where we're just screaming at each yeah, other, we're to totally you jacked. know what's happening. We got a tea sponsor inbound. Yeah. <laughs> Magnolia Mayhem's going to save us from that, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know if you can risk it because it invites male pattern baldness and your hair is sort of a thing. 
That's true. That's true. 11,123 sats across two boosts. Uh, following your last episode, I was immediately thrust into an episode of a podcast that had adjusted the pre-run commercial skip on. They've gone from about 120 seconds to 160, so I landed in the middle of some prosciutto Spangle English commercial that really piqued my interest, especially considering I was just coming off of the Bitcoin dad when I got it. I skipped back to the beginning of the commercial and listened through to give it a shot, trying to figure out what was going on. The basic gist is that Visa have started specifically targeting Salvadorians in the U.S., hawking a new service to send money to El Salvador via a Visa account. I find this oddly specific. Is this a direct reaction to El Salvador legitimizing Bitcoin? Am I drawing lines where there are none? What's your all's take on this? If you'd like, I've linked you the raw audio here. Wow, two links this week for clips? Thank you, guys. Wow. Also, the evil rooster boost is a reference to uh, something on no agenda. Fair enough. Podcasting 2.0 got a Spaceballs boost and they missed the reference. So I think that's fair. Yeah, well, this is uh, this is wild. I mean, I think that the answer is obviously yes. Obviously, something is happening with remittances to El Salvador. I mean, maybe that market is just more visible, possibly because of the Bitcoin news around it. And so Visa wants to get in on it. So I don't know if Visa is competing with Bitcoin here or if they're competing with, say, TransUnion or one of these remittance companies. Right. But it definitely is a topic. And I think that as other sources of growth for credit card processing and transactions are either tapped out, overdeveloped, or shrinking, remittances chug on because families back home need that money to survive. And so it will be sent. Sure. Well, El Salvador is kind of in an upswing right now, too. I mean, we don't know if it'll last, but El Salvador is in an upswing right now. I would imagine that creates more demand for dollars, you know, from family members, for businesses. And so from all different avenues, you're looking at different ways to get dollars down there because it's a dollar economy. It's also where all of the dollar coins that used to circulate in the U.S. end up. Yeah. Boy, did my kid love that. Boy, did he love that. Neural P boosted in 5,999 sats with no message. But thank you for the boost. And you should have boosted in 6,000 because the consumer logic is that 599 equals 5, not 6. It's true. Adversary 17, though, he's playing the Spaceballs numbers. One, two, three, four, five. He says, I can't believe you guys don't understand that Bitcoin is the reason for global warming. Clearly, we're boiling the entirety of the oceans each and every transaction. Anyways, keep up the anti-FUD war, gentlemen. For those who think of themselves and have a desire for truth, your words are not lost. I had a great time listening to the last few interviews. Keep those coming when you can. Thank you, Mr. 17. Appreciate the Spaceballs boost. JQ1980 boosted in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Did you guys ever get a Nixos Bitcoin node going? If so, care to share that configuration? Love the show. And I did not. I always get Nixos running and then I turn my attention to something else and then I have to start all over again because I've forgotten how it works. And so that's my cycle. I'm going to be building two of them. And so one is waiting on hardware and the other is waiting on the configuration of the host OS. So no, but still planning on it. You know, it's one of those things that is moving, but moving slowly because it's not an urgent issue. There's a couple other things that are moving pretty quick. Rusty Shackelford comes in with 2000 sats, but no message from Fountain. Appreciate that. And Nullifier sent in 2000 sats. Test boost. I specifically opened some channels to start supporting the dad pod, but I noticed after listening to a few that no sats were streamed. Hope this works. Well, this worked. Thank you for going the extra mile to support the show. Really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Nullifier. First shout out to Bob B for that reoccurring 3000 sat boost. 
just appreciate that. Shout out to everybody else who boosts in under that cutoff line, which I believe we're doing at a thousand sats or two thousand sats. So we see you out there. That's interesting. I see Oscar from Fountain. I see Mirror Morals podcast out there. I see uh, Olive Lion out there. User Sats Bowl. Thank you, everybody. We had nineteen boosters and we stacked two hundred and fourteen thousand three hundred and forty-seven thousand sats. We appreciate all of you who boost in. I think that's a nice baseline for the show, and we'd love getting your messages, sparking conversation. It's really kind of like the most improv part because we never know what we're going to talk about. And this week, we really got some great boosts in there. Really appreciate that. If you'd like to boost in and you haven't yet, there's so many options now. Like, right, you could just use Strike or Cash App and go to the Fountain FM website and find the Bitcoin Dad Pod. You could use a new podcast app and get all the cool new podcasting and two-to-no features like instant notifications when a show's been published. Within like 90 seconds, you get live stream support in there. You get chapters, transcripts, and boosts. Podcastapps.com to get a whole great list. Fountain 1.0 is so close. Podverse is rocking right now. And I have to say, Castomatic is choice on iOS. And then, of course, you could just keep your podcast app, get Albi, getalbi.com, and then boost from something like the Podcast Index or Fountain. Do it through the web. We'll put links in the show notes to help you figure all this out. It is a little bit of an uphill climb, but then once you do it, you're on the Lightning Network. So you get access to anything on the Lightning Network. You can move sats, anything, anywhere on the Lightning Network. Uh, you can support other podcasting Twitter shows. So it's a little bit of a climb, but then once you're there, there's a nice resort at the top where the temperature's just right and lots of great people are hanging out. We thank everybody who takes time to boost in. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on December 8th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, remotely with... With me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>